times are crazy. In a time of confusion, division, and lies, we need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. There's a bear on the prowl in the Ukraine, and it's the, um, it's the Russian bear. I was curious about this uh, notion of the bear symbolizing Russia, and apparently that goes back to the 16th century. It's something that predates uh, communism. It continued that symbol during communism, and in fact it represents also the Russian Federation now. Now you know that things are heating up, not just because the uh, Russians have sent uh, close to 100,000 troops toward the Ukraine border, they have done some, um, you've seen, um, I've actually seen some video of Russian military jets landing at airfields uh, at the Ukraine border. And perhaps the most troubling, uh, here's the New York Post, U.S. Embassy families to evacuate Ukraine as Russia tensions rise. You know, they say that uh, when there's a storm coming, like the rats all go underground because they sort of know it's coming well. You can tell when the embassy is being cleared out. I mean, how familiar is this? And uh, to me, um, it raises larger problems here. This is, yes, it's about the Ukraine, but it's also about China and Taiwan. Uh, it's also about the fact that when Democrats come to power, the world always seems to become a more dangerous place. I mean, think back. Jimmy Carter, the fall of uh, Iran, Think of Bill Clinton and the emboldening of bin Laden and the plotting of 9-11, not to mention the Arab Spring, which of course came later, uh, but was um, in a sense motivated by the lassitude of the uh, Clinton years. And then, um, and then under Obama, all kinds of chaos in all, all kinds of places. And now, of course, Biden. Now... Um, there are two schools of thought in thinking about the Ukraine, and neither of them seems to me to be satisfactory. The first one is, well, let's call it the, the warmongering approach. Here's Michael McFall, a former U.S. ambassador to Russia. He says, in the global struggle between democracy and dictatorship uh, and the fight for a peaceful Europe, Ukraine is on the front line, not unlike West Germany during the Cold War. Well, Number one, uh, this is a uh, facile transplantation from one crisis to another. Second, there's a huge difference between Ukraine and West Germany. To take a single example, uh, Ukraine used to be part of Russia. In fact, in my series talking about Russian literature, um, a number of the Russian writers, um, and I'll talk later today about uh, Gogol. Gogol was born in the Ukraine, and the Ukraine was then part of the Tsarist Empire. So, Part of what makes this a little tricky is that in the case of Ukraine, uh, Russia is saying not that we are invading a uh, bordering or neighboring country, but rather we are exercising influence and seeking to sort of absorb a country that was always, or at least that was historically part of Russia. By the way, China makes exactly the same claim about Taiwan. It's what China is saying is we're not we're not invading India we're not invading Europe we're we're essentially absorbing a country Taiwan that was part of China look at the people over there they are Chinese so uh, we have to understand the point of view of the people that we're up against now 
On the other side, there's the warmongering side that I mentioned. On the other side, you've got the, uh, I would call it quasi-isolationist side. It's not our fight. Uh, we have nothing to do with this. Uh, here's Matt Walsh, um, kind of a typical expression of this view. Ukraine is not our country and not our problem. Um, anyone who would risk a war with Russia for the sake of some random country 6,000 miles away is a fool or a psychopath or both. Now, strictly speaking, this is true. I don't see it's difficult to think of the United States going to war over the Ukraine. But it's also difficult to consider the United States going to war over Taiwan. Uh, and then would the United States go to war if China took over South Korea? How about if uh, China then took over Japan? Would the United States go to war over that? So when you apply this um, kind of America first principle at an extreme, it would seem to suggest that the United States should basically mind its own business, let all the uh, bullies of the world satisfy their appetite for aggression. We are hands off. What's this got to do with us until you show up basically, you know, at New York City or in California? This is not our problem. I really cannot agree with this. Uh, I think it actually reflects a, a naive and perhaps even foolish view of power politics. Why? Because the simple truth is that there are innumerable options uh, in between uh, doing nothing and going to war. But number two, the whole concept of deterrence is that you don't want to get to the bad place where you're forced to uh, think about those options and, and exercise them. I mean, here's China. This is Fox News. China flying dozens of warplanes near Taiwan. Now ask yourself, why is all this happening now? Why is China suddenly uh, sort of taunting Taiwan? Why is Russia moving troops to the Ukraine? Well, I think the answer is not merely Biden, but the humiliation of America and Afghanistan. Essentially, the combination of the ignominious retreat from Afghanistan, a Saigon-style withdrawal, the leaving of Americans behind, and then perhaps all this kind of um, uh, epicene and effeminate displays of the woke military, people sort of uh, cadets walking around in high heels, uh, people essentially doing all kinds of um, all kinds of trans dances and salutes and uh, this sort of uh, worship of identity politics. Any other country looking at this would say this is this is not a serious power. This is basically a, a joke, and we don't have anything to fear from these guys. And this is the point. Uh, it was Teddy Roosevelt who said, "You know, speak softly but carry a big stick." And if you think what Teddy was saying, it's not intervene everywhere, and, and neither was Reagan. Um, with Reagan, it was peace through strength, be judicious in the use of force, but be willing to use force when necessary, use it in a proportional way to achieve your objectives. Think of how successfully the United States, for example, deplo deployed force to push the Soviets out, out of Afghanistan without getting into uh, a U.S.-Soviet war. So, the Ukraine, I think, is, is becoming a problem, and it's symbolic of the larger problem. And the larger problem is that the United States seems to be voluntarily ceding or relinquishing its position as the world's superpower. And for this, I blame largely Biden and the Democrats. The Biden administration seems to be um, getting ready to participate in a, a war uh, over the Ukraine. Now, um, the Biden people have already sent over to Ukraine um, close to 200,000 pounds of lethal aid, 
uh, ammunition, uh, all kinds of stuff. This is for the kind of frontline Ukrainian troops to be able to block any Russian, well, incursion, to use the word that Biden himself used. Now, the Ukrainians are saying, look, war is not imminent. We're not saying that. But there's no question that there is a big Russian buildup on the Ukraine border, 100,000 troops. In fact, that's almost the exact number that the, so, that the Russians used uh, decades ago to invade, uh, invade Afghanistan. Uh, but what is, uh, what is Russia's objective here? What are they trying to achieve? Um, according to the intelligence agencies from Britain, and Britain generally has better intelligence than the United States. Um, that's partly because I guess they maybe aren't as woke as we are uh, in, the, um, in the CIA. But another reason is that, of course, Britain is closer to the scene of the action. And uh, by and large, and this goes back decades, French intelligence, British intelligence tends to be a little bit more on the money than U.S. intelligence. Anyway, the Brits think that Russia is not trying to occupy Ukraine in a kind of conventional military style, but rather to replace the Ukrainian government with a uh, party, with a government that is entirely pro-Russian, pro-Putin. The party they have in mind is a small party called Nashi, which is so small it has no seats in the Ukrainian parliament. But those are the guys that the Russians want to install. I mean, think of the way that the Soviets installed, for example, Jaruzelski. He was kind of a puppet in Poland. This is evidently uh, Putin's playbook in, um, in a new situation. Now, the problem with the uh, Ukraine, I think, is that we should have not gotten ourselves in a situation where our enemies uh, have become so emboldened. We just haven't, we here, meaning in this case, the Biden administration hasn't taken the steps that would have said to Russia, don't even think about this. Uh, here's China taunting us at the same time. China flies dozens of warplanes near Taiwan. And I think the Chinese are almost saying, listen, we're going to kind of watch this Ukrainian situation. If Biden proves to be weak over there, well, we know what's coming next, because if he doesn't have the appetite to block Ukraine, he's certainly not going to have the appetite to block Taiwan. And um, and uh, Biden, let's remember, could have had sanctions against Russia, sanctions that were in place under Trump. I mean, here's the irony. Trump is supposed to be this great pawn of Russia, Putin's man in the White House. Yet he imposes sanctions on Russia. He blocks the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Biden comes in. Uh, and Biden here is uh, compromised every which way. I mean, let's remember he's been taking money from Russia. He got a big check from a woman in Moscow. Uh, Biden has been getting money from the Ukraine. Let's remember his son was sitting on the Burisma board, the board of a Ukrainian energy company, and collecting $50,000 a month for him and more for his and same amount for his partner. Um, Biden was also got a prosecutor fired who was looking into Biden's dealings in the Ukraine and boasted about it. So all of this is the essential backdrop to realize that I think from the point of view of the Russians and the Chinese, not only is Biden weak, that would be bad enough. That would be Biden is another Jimmy Carter. He's a nincompoop. He doesn't have the backbone. It's also that Biden is compromised. Biden is corrupt. Biden is a guy that we can buy off. And let's remember, it's been part of the strategy of great powers. The Chinese are like masters at this. They go to countries where you have tyrants, uh, and these are tyrants who are having trouble getting loans from the, from the, um, 
International Monetary Fund because they're so corrupt and half the money ends up with the tyrant. And the Chinese go, listen, no problem. Don't worry about the International Monetary Fund. We'll give you loans. But in exchange, we want access to your minerals. So the Chinese are very used to using the leverage of money. Uh, and I think they feel like we used it with Biden and it was successful. Biden is bought and paid for by the CCP. So I think all of this makes it difficult to have a rational debate about what to do about the Ukraine. Now, my view on all this is actually neither the kind of aggressively interventionist tone that you hear from someone, the kind of never Trump and the neoconservative wing. It's, but it's not the isolationist view either that we should sort of do nothing. Hey, listen, let's just put up some fences on our southern border. We're going to be okay. No, we're actually not going to be okay. And, uh, there are things that we need to do in the world. And, and Trump understood this, by the way. Trump, Trump adopted the Teddy Roosevelt philosophy, uh, which is to be careful when you get involved, but to speak softly, carry a big stick, use it only when necessary, but don't hesitate to use it when it is in fact when it is, in fact, uh, needed. Uh, we shouldn't get involved in conflicts where our vital interests are not involved. Uh, at the same time, we have tools, we have diplomatic tools, we have sanctions, we have other ways in which we can, not only alone, but with our allies, impose severe penalties on countries that they care about. Russia cares about economic sanctions. China cares about its economy. In fact, its economy is the driving force of its ambitions. If the Chinese economy was in danger of being wrecked, the Chinese would think twice not just about doing about invading Taiwan. They would think twice about a lot of things that they're doing in the world. So there are opportunities uh, for the Biden administration to do reasonable things. But of course, this being Biden, we cannot count on the Biden administration doing any of them. Guys, I'm really happy to welcome to the podcast a uh, China expert and a China watcher, Steve Mosier. He's president of the Population Research Institute. Uh, he's an advocate for human rights uh, in China, and he's the author of the book Bully of Asia, a book that really looks at the a kind of grand plan of China, not just to dominate Asia, but as we'll, we'll see in a moment to, to exercise a kind of worldwide, uh, domination. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining me. I uh, really appreciate, um, having you. Uh, you say in your book, um, and this may be, uh, kind of its, um, punchline that China's goal is to bring America to its knees without firing a shot. Um, talk about how the Chinese hope to achieve that goal. Well, way back in 1991, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Deng Xiaoping called together the other senior leaders. Deng, of course, Vice Premier Deng, was in effective charge of the country at that time. And he said, the old Cold War is over. America has won. The Soviet Union has been defeated. Uh, the new Cold War is now going to begin between China and the United States, and China will win this one. And, of course, by China, he means the Chinese Communist Party. And so China has effectively been at war with us across all domains, except the kinetic. We're not firing bullets at each other uh, for the last 31 years. Uh, Americans are just waking up to that fact. So... I think the reason for the American slumber, um, and I'd like to know if you agree with this, 
is because America thought that the Chinese were moving away from communism in a kind of reformist direction. They were moving away from socialism and replacing complete centralized state control with a kind of state-enabled capitalism. So all of these were seen as positive developments, and I think there was some expectation, I mean, ridiculous and naive in retrospect, that the Chinese would somehow evolve toward liberal democracy. But why were these predictions so flatly wrong? Was it never the intention of the Chinese to go in this direction? Well, it certainly wasn't the intention of the Chinese Communist Party to go in this direction. Back in 1958, a long time ago, Chairman Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao being one of the great mass murderers of human history, far eclipsing uh, Stalin and Hitler in that regard, uh, set up in 1958, he set up an Earth Control Committee, believe it or not, he had a, an, an economy the size, you know, smaller than, than Argentina's, and he was setting up an Earth Control Committee because his ultimate plan, of course, was to expand uh, the Communist Party's writ outside of the borders of China. So uh, this has been the goal for a long time. We deluded ourselves uh, back in the late 1970s when I first went to China, 1979, 1980. I was the first American on the ground in China allowed to do research there. Uh, we deluded ourselves into thinking that uh, it would... Uh, it would bring China around, that we would draw China along in our powerful wake, and they would become like us. Economic modernization would lead to political modernization. And guess what? It didn't happen. That dream ended on Tiananmen Square on June 4th of 1989 in a massacre when the Chinese Communist Party mowed down unarmed students in the streets of Beijing, the capital city. Unarmed students who wanted what? Well, they wanted democratization. They wanted an end to one-party dictatorship. Uh, they were killed. Uh, so that was, you know, it, it should have been a wake-up call for us in 1989, but we lived with our illusions for 20 years beyond that. Is it because, and I remember thinking back now to the early Reagan years in which Deng Xiaoping was seen as, well, you could almost call him the Gorbachev of China. And by that, I mean he was seen as somebody who was of a different stripe then say Mao Zedong, and that he was moving China, and he did move China in some respects in, in, in a new direction. But I think what you're saying is that with regard to centralization, with regard to political totalitarianism, with regard to establishing an unchallenged tyranny, he was no different than Mao. No, I mean, he was a practical man. He said it doesn't matter whether the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. Uh, he was happy to accept Western capital, help from Wall Street, Western technology, Western investment. And, of course, we didn't realize at the time that if an American company goes into China, uh, they squeeze the company dry of technology and then squeeze it back out of China. That's how it works. So we did this enormous transfer of capital and technology. We gave them access to our enormous market. We enabled the rise of the country, uh, Dinesh, that wants to destroy us, which is probably the greatest strategic blunder uh, made by any country uh, throughout all of human history. Steve, talk a little bit about uh, China is pursuing military initiatives on the one hand, and you discuss those in the book. Um, you say, in fact, I thought this was a striking statement. You say that the 
The Chinese believe that in a world of insecurity, the real security comes from being sort of the biggest badass on the planet. Uh, and I assume oh. that, uh, you know, applying that to our current situation, if the Chinese were to successfully uh, overrun and overwhelm Taiwan, they would, in fact, wouldn't they have that reputation at a time when America has a humiliating defeat uh, in Afghanistan, people falling out of planes, Americans left behind. If the Chinese could successfully subdue Taiwan, one, the world would take notice and the world would say, listen, the people to be scared of is not the woke military of the United States, but the Chinese. Absolutely. Uh, the debacle in Afghanistan was something that I, I never thought I would see in my lifetime. I was an officer in the U.S. Navy a long time ago when Saigon fell. And, and this was clearly the fall of Kabul was worse than the fall of Saigon, in my view. And it certainly has emboldened uh, the Chinese Communist Party and its leader, Xi Jinping, who declared who declared several years ago that he was going to take back Taiwan by the year 2020. Now, 2020 has come and gone, of course. That was the beginning of our COVID nightmare. But he has not abandoned his plans. There are amphibious uh, landing ships being built now by the People's Liberation Army Navy. Uh, there are frequent, in fact, daily incursions into Taiwan airspace by People's Liberation Army Air Force, planes and bombers and fighters, uh, ships transgressing into Taiwan waters. So the aggressive actions have never stopped. And certainly, you know, you're right. Uh, China would not stop at Taiwan. Uh, it would continue. China is, is an empire that has survived into the modern age, and empires have no natural borders. China doesn't recognize the existence of the current world order. It wants to replace it with a new world order, and those boundaries in that new world order will be set by force, Dinesh, uh, not by existing treaties, and certainly not by something called the Treaty of Westphalia, uh, signed by Western nations hundreds of years ago. China was never a signatory. Let's take a pause. When we come back, let's pursue this idea of what a Chinese world order would look like and how the Chinese hope to get there. We'll be right back with Stephen Mosier. If you're wondering how inflation keeps going up, up and up and why, here's the government's dirty secret. They kind of want it. Think about it. Right now, inflation rates are higher than the interest on Treasury bonds. So that means with every day that passes, the government owes less on its mountain of debt. Imagine if your mortgage had a negative interest rate. Would you be in a hurry to pay it off? Exactly. So your pain is their gain. Protect your savings now. Hedge against inflation with gold from Birch Gold because the government is sabotaging the value of the U.S. dollar. Birch Gold will help you to convert an IRA or eligible 401k into an IRA backed by real gold. Now that's peace of mind. That's why I'm a customer uh, with thousands of satisfied customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, you can trust Birch Gold to protect your savings. Go ahead, text Dinesh to 989898. You'll get a free information kit on holding gold in a tax-sheltered account. Then you can call Birch Gold, and they'll help you to protect your hard-earned savings. Text Dinesh to 989898 to get your free information kit now. I'm back with scholar and author Stephen Mosier. He's the author of the important book, Bully of Asia. Steve, we're talking about how China wants to create its own uh, new world order, if you will. And one of the um, central ways they're going about that is through this 
sort of new Silk Road initiative. Now, the Silk Road, of course, a reference to the ancient Silk Roads by which China was able to establish travel and trade routes with largely the rest of Asia. But now um, you say and you you document there they have in mind a global Silk Road. Uh, what, what are the Chinese uh, plotting here? Well, what the Chinese Communist Party wants to do, and, and this is their vision of the future, uh, they want, uh, they envision a world where the factory floor of the world is located in China. The China makes all manufacturers. The industrial base of the world is located there. Uh, the rest of the world has three functions under that new world order set up by China. Uh, they have to consume the products that flow off the Chinese flat factory floors. They have to provide the raw materials to feed the industrial machine of China. And, of course, they have to feed China's workforce because uh, China is a food-poor country which must import massive amounts of grain each year and other foodstuffs in order to feed its own people. So that's the world of the future they envision. Uh, the rest of the world is deindustrialized is a source of food and raw materials, and then sheepish, passive consumers of Chinese-made products. Uh, that's not a world that I want to live in, that I want my children and grandchildren to live in. Let's go about how they, how they do this. You give two examples I want to highlight. In Angola, you say, uh, where there are lot, there's, by the way, lots of oil deposits, the International Monetary Fund took the position that, look, the politicians are corrupt, there's a lot of graft and corruption, we can't give you loans. So the Chinese go, listen, guys, we'll give you loans, we don't care about your corruption, take, a, take as much of it as you want, uh, but we want access to your raw materials, we want access to your oil. And so the Chinese kind of buy their way in by giving a sweet deal to these corrupt bureaucrats, uh, and then pretty soon they're calling the shots in Angola, right? Well, absolutely. And, you know, one way to look at the Chinese Communist Party is as a criminal enterprise. I mean, this is an international criminal organization that does not abide by uh, international law, uh, that has utter disrespect for the standards of the countries that they're operating in, and always proceeds to advance its cause by using money, uh, drugs, sex, whatever it takes to compromise officials on the receiving end. And there's no concern uh, on the part of the party for the well-being of either the Chinese people themselves or the people of the countries that are being exploited. Uh, that's how it works. And, and the Chinese Communist Party also wants this. It wants to control resources at at the wellhead, at the source. It wants to control oil at the wellhead. It wants to own farmland itself. It wants to own uh, food processing plants. That's why it's buying farmland throughout the United States, Canada, and Australia, because it wants to own everything in the supply chain pipeline from the farmland itself. Those are things we should be very, very leery of. We should put, I think a couple of states have a restriction on on uh, Chinese companies buying farmland. The United States should pass such a restriction. We need to keep farmland, which is a natural security resource, in our own hands and not sell it off to China. Let me ask a kind of a, in some ways, a sensitive question. You're saying the Chinese are trying to, they're trying to buy Angola, they're trying to buy Cambodia, they're trying to buy farmland. 
Do you think that they have been trying to buy the, the Biden family? And by that, I mean to offer sweet enough deals to the to Joe Biden and his bagmen, Hunter Biden and the other uh, brothers, so that they will be uh, compromised in their dealing with China. They'll be, in a sense, uh, predictably friendly toward China uh, and, at a, and at a bargain basement price because you only it's, it's much easier to buy off one guy or even one family. What's the cost of that compared to the kind of deals that China could get in return. Yes, that's exactly what they do, and they've been doing it for a long, long time. Now, think back to the Clinton years when the People's Liberation Army poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into the Clinton campaign in 1996 in order to do what? To buy influence with the Clinton administration. Now, they've gotten a lot more sophisticated in that over the years, but the money has continued to flow. Literally tens of billions of dollars are being used to uh, subvert uh, democracies uh, and establish dictatorships around the world. The Chinese Communist Party, which is a corrupt enterprise, propagates itself by creating other corrupt enterprises and by corrupting democracies. And there's a, a well-known Chinese scholar who said a few months ago, uh, we give uh, American politicians one bag of money, and if that's not enough, we give them two bags of money, and eventually they do what we want. And I think the Biden family has gotten lots and lots of bags of money. Wow. Um, let's close out by me asking you about this um business about so-called patriotic education in China, because at a time when it seems like American schools are sort of teaching students to hate their country, the Chinese are sort of going in the opposite direction, and they have this sort of philosophy of the superiority of the the Han Chinese. Uh, people may not be familiar with this almost uh, xenophobic and racial doctrine that is at the heart of Chinese education. Just say a word about what the Chinese are doing. What are the kind of ideas that they are inculcating through their schools in young Chinese students? Well, after the Tiananmen massacre and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Chinese Communist Party put in place a patriotic education program. So beginning in kindergarten and going through college, every year you learn uh, about the supposed history and ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. And if it's all sweetness and light, there's no mention of the 42.5 million people who died in the famine in the early 1960s, the millions of victims of the uh, uh, Cultural Revolution, the 400 million little victims of the one-child policy that I was an eyewitness to when I was back in China. Uh, so they teach the Chinese young people, a false history of China. And in fact, one final point, Xi Jinping has actually said that there are two weaknesses that the Chinese Communist Party must, be, must avoid. They are any accurate accounting of the history and the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party itself. Because an accurate accounting of that history, an accurate accounting of that ideology, reveals that everything the Chinese are taught about their own recent history and the ideology of the people who control them is, quite frankly, a fabrication, a lie. Wow. Uh, thank you, Stephen Moja. I really appreciate having you. This is a fascinating book, um, Bully of Asia. Thank you. Guys, I'm really happy to welcome to the podcast uh, Sharona Bishop. Uh, Sharona's a mom. She's the founder, in fact, of a group called America's Mom. 
which is a conservative uh, platform to support and encourage and involve parents. She's also a wife and mom herself of four children. I uh, saw a very disturbing account of the FBI uh, visiting Sharona Bishop at her home, and I was like, wow, I need to get the full story. Sharona, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. I've been reading a little bit about your case, but of course, I'm a little distrustful of the sources I'm reading, um, such as PolitiFact, uh, and I'll get to that, but let me start by asking, just describe the experience, because it's got to be a completely... Um, unnerving one of the FBI showing up at your door. When was that and what happened? Thank you, Dinesh, for having me on to share this story. I think it's very important because I'm a regular, everyday citizen. I have no criminal history, no violent history. And the FBI is usually reserved for those who are participating in extreme criminal behavior. On November 16th, I was homeschooling my kids and cooking for the week. You know, we're still in our pajamas and um, just living our life. And at 930 in the morning, there was banging on our front door and uh, followed by yelling. And... Um, I didn't have any reason to believe the FBI would ever be at my door. So it took me just a minute to kind of figure out what was going on. I ushered my boys into their bedroom and just said, wait here. They're eight and 10. And uh, my husband came up from the, from uh, his office downstairs. He could hear banging on the door and didn't know what was going on. And probably in a less, definitely under a minute, maybe 45 seconds, we were at the door about to open it. They were yelling, this is the FBI, we have a warrant. And before we could open the door, we were literally right there. They took a battering ram to my door and busted it open. The irony is the door wasn't even locked. Um, and, and again, I mean, no time for us to get to the door and contemplate and comprehend what is going on. Um, after they busted my door open, they, uh, proceeded to pull my husband out the front door and pulled me out the front door. I had my phone in my hand trying to call our attorney because I didn't know what to do. I don't know what, are they allowed to do this? And what am I supposed to be doing when they come to my home like this? Uh, they grabbed my phone from my hand. I asked for it back. They said, absolutely not. It's part of the warrant and they can take it. And they proceeded to pull my arm back behind me and handcuff me. Um, they handcuffed um, myself and attempted to handcuff my husband as well. Um, I was in handcuffs for about 30 minutes. My boys finally came to the front door to see what was going on. And, you know, you're standing out there in your pajamas. It's it's cold. It's November in the mountains here where I live. And they are... Um, going through my home. They didn't, uh, gosh, you know, I, it's still kind of a, um, a shocking situation. Um, but there was more that went on that day as well with my oldest daughter who was present. Uh, one of the agents who was six, seven, six, five, six, seven, um, proceeded to manhandle her by her hoodie, pulling her up the stairs and back down the stairs. Um, after we'd asked that she get her phone so she could call our attorney and we could figure out what to do. You know, I'm a regular person. And I'm well aware of the October 4th um, mandate that was put out by the DOJ to go after parents who are being vocal against this regime right now, both in the school board and nationally. So that's that's really where we're at right now. Now, let's turn to that. Let's describe uh, what what is the type of activism that you're involved in that you think made you a target? Uh, and then second, what was their stated reason for being at your door? They, they're, they're like, we got to search your house. Search your house for what? Right. So it took them, they, they needed about a half an hour to clear my house, quote unquote. And they, 
the the warrant stated that it was conspiracy to commit wire fraud. I don't know what that means, but I've spoken to many retired agents since who have told me that's just a categorical, you know, cover to be able to get your contact information. One thing I, I want you to know is that one of the investigators that was present that morning, I asked him, why, what is it you think I've done that warrants this behavior on my family? And he said, you connect people. So the activism that I do is I hold school boards accountable. Um, I realized in 2019 that elections have consequences. Bad policy is destroying my state, destroying my local county. Um, and I, I wanted the people, regular people, to get involved and stop letting the political elite determine our lives. Their policies are destroying us. And in, in a very quick, hasty way, we're seeing it right now under the Biden regime. Um, but that's that's what I do. I educate parents. I bring them together with elected officials so they can hear firsthand and get involved in the conversation. In Colorado, we flipped 10 school boards on November uh, 3rd, 2021. It was an unprecedented action. And it was because parents got involved. And um, we, you know, that's what we do. We encourage regular people get involved. This is your country. It's your state. It's your town. And you've got to hold these people accountable. So that's really the work I do. Um, I've also been aware of election irregularities in Colorado, as well as the rest of the country. And um, I think those two things in tandem are are dangerous right now. They do not want regular people being a part of this process. They don't want us asking questions, and they definitely don't want us using social media, media to educate other people. I mean, you know how that goes. The censorship has been unbelievable. Um, our phones are tapped. You know, it, it's unbelievable. It's alarming what is happening in America where we're supposed to be able to express our grievances. We're supposed to be able to hold our government accountable. And these actions definitely um, persuade some to be silent. No, Sharona, there's a um, there's a so-called fact check in in um, in PolitiFact. And I, I'm sort of chuckling because I know that these fact checks are largely fraudulent. But in this fact check, it uh, it says that uh, the FBI was really trying to search a woman named Tina Peters, who was a Mesa County clerk, on some apparent election violation, and that they searched your home because you were an ally of Tina Peters. And I'm thinking to myself, how stupid is that? Uh, whatever they're searching her house for, whether legitimate or not, what possibly could you have to do with that just by being, quote, associated with her? So the article was deeply unsatisfactory on its own merits, but would you address this issue that they weren't going after you, says PolitiFact, because you are a parent or you're an activist. It had nothing to do with school boards, but there was evidently some some alleged corruption against this other woman, Tina Peters. You're associated with her. That's why they came to search your house. Address that directly, if you will. Absolutely. Well, that's there's two things you're not allowed to talk about. You're not allowed to talk about election irregularities, and you're not allowed to talk about your grievances with school boards. And we know for a fact that our school, our a superintendent of our school district here reported parents to the FBI. They took advantage of that offer, and they made a list and sent it to them. Interestingly enough, on the, I don't work for Clerk Peters. I don't, I'm, I'm an independent citizen. I've simply used my voice to say there are some things going on that don't look right. I've been a very vocal supporter of people who are investigating election irregularities and a very vocal supporter of grassroots people who are running for school boards. PolitiFact has never called me. They've never interviewed me. They have no idea what they're talking about. They've certainly never seen the warrant um, that was served to me. And as far as I know, they haven't spoken with the FBI. We also have never seen the affidavit that led to these warrants. So so um, they have no idea. 
And, and quite frankly, at the end of the day, I still don't fully understand why they came to my home. I really don't. Um, but I speculate that those are the two things we're just not allowed to be a part of in America anymore. I think what's disturbing, Sharona, and maybe I'll close on this, is the fact that the, you know, we heard about Merrick Garland and his task force against terrorism. We heard about the prospect of parents being targeted. But you are a real life parent who was, in fact, uh, whose privacy and whose life was uh, invaded in this way. I think it's a very disturbing indication. And thank you very much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much, Nish. Keep up the good fight. My pleasure.